What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? (laughs) By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel shall be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted... If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Craig. Good morning. Leave your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9. What I want to do first is uh, I want to pray. That's a lot of scripture and that's a lot of truth. That's a lot of heavy truth, a lot of weighty truth. You heard the word glory in there several times. That's what the word glory in the Bible actually means. It means weightiness. It means heaviness. And these are heavy truths. And they're meant to be like the ballast in the bottom of the boat. So when the storms come and the harsh weather comes and the floods come, you, you're stabilized, you have security, you're not going to sink, you're not going to topple over. We don't need a feather for a ballast, do we? We need something weighty, we need something with metal in it, something with lead, something that's going to hold us down, not under the water, but deep in the water so that we don't rock and are unstable and double-minded and fall all over the place. And I'm a piece of clay, just like that verse says, and so are you. And I, man, I feel that today. I feel the weightiness of this text. I felt it all week. I felt so many different emotions this week. I felt even under attack. A little bit earlier, I asked Cliff, I said, man, just pray over me. Just, you ever just feel just, uh, 
just your creatureliness, just that you're, uh, I don't know, words, words sometimes spell as yesterday, I don't know, sharing a moment of just being personal here, being vulnerable, I guess. Uh, I took a sleeping pill on Friday night so that I could get caught up on my sleep, and it was a Unisom. I don't know if you've ever taken that. Sometimes, man, that thing's incredible. It works, and sometimes I'm going to stop taking it. The next day, I, I, it's the most depressed I can remember being in years. I don't know why. I don't know if it was the medication. I don't know if it was the enemy. I don't know if it was my own fickle, you know, heart. But I just felt at one point yesterday, I felt unutterable despair. <laughs> that incredible man. And then God lifted my spirits. My wife was praying for me. So, all that to say, man, we're, dep- we're so dependent on God. We're just a, a thought away from insanity or a phone call away or a scan away or a text away from terrible news. But God sits enthroned above all of it. He sits sovereign, and he's good, and he's wise, and he's trustworthy, and he loves us, and he cares about us. And so let's ask his help, and let's dig into the scripture. No, we won't finish all of that. You know what I always do? Always back up, and always move forward, kind of like you're, you're getting a, a, a start on the ramp, right? And we, we usually try to hit what's right there in the middle, and then we'll finish up next time. So would you bow with me and pray? And before we do that, I want to get this announcement out of the way because I'll forget. Um, We are finishing up today nominations for lay elders at this church. If you are a member, surely you've been here, you've gotten the announcements. If you are a member here, uh, you are qualified to make nominations. That doesn't mean you have to think of every single man who may possibly fit the qualifications. It means really... Pray, ask God for wisdom, for discernment, for direction. And the, the man or the men you've been able to firsthand observe, maybe you're in a community group that they're in or they lead, or maybe you live close to them, or maybe they're a personal friend, maybe you rub shoulders with them in some other way in the church, you serve together. Uh, you are qualified to nominate that person because you know them and you know they, they fit those 16, in your estimation, those 16 characteristics that are the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and then 1 Peter 5. So today is the last day to make your nominations. You can do it with a sheet of paper back there on the donation box. where We don't pass an offering plate here. Or you can do it digitally on the website. You can go to the Connect Center and talk to Megan afterwards. She'll give you instructions on how to do that. But we're going to close it at the end of the day. That'll be the last opportunity we've had. That'll be three weeks because we have to move forward with our nomination review committee. So all of that being said... Let's stop and pray, acknowledge we need God's help, and ask Him to come. Heavenly Father, I feel my creatureliness today. I feel like the piece of clay that I am, but Lord, that's not insulting. That is good to be reminded of, of who I am and, and what I am in the grand scheme of things, to be put in my place and kept in my place. You are my creator. You formed me out of the dust of the ground. You breathed life into my nostrils. You have redeemed me. You have filled me with your spirit. You have put your call Upon my life, you've given me a purpose, a new identity, a passion to know you, to love you, to serve you, to obey you, to make you known. I pray today you would give all of us help, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts to see these truths, to see them as good news, even though there's an edge to them. Sometimes they can leave us unsettled if we're viewing them in the wrong perspective, in the wrong light. Show us today, help us, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, come and help us see why this 
chapter, why this section is still good news, and it fits into the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan throughout the history of the world. And it's Paul explaining the gospel to a church in Rome he had never been to. And, and consequently, he's explaining it to us today at Grace Life. Help us to understand it, Lord, and to celebrate it and to share it. Help it to reach those places where we suffer, Lord, and we need help. We need to be reminded that you sit enthroned above all of this fallen world with all of its hard news, sad news, dangerous news, grim, bleak, hopeless outlook. Lord, you are good, and you know us, and you love us, and you have redeemed us through Christ. And because of that, we have a a new purpose, a new identity, and a new passion. Lord, thank you. Help us today. Forgive us of our sins. Lord, we we come to you knowing that uh, we need forgiveness. We need it new and fresh every day as part of the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, Lord, and help us to hallow your name today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. I'm going to get this thing going. There we go. Okay, today in Romans chapter 9 that you just heard Craig read, we are talking about God. And that's a good thing. And I don't want to take that, I don't want to take that for granted. What a privilege. We get to come together. We get to gather together as a church, as the body of Christ we get to come into this auditorium, and we get to talk about God again. And I don't ever want that to become stale, or I don't ever want to presume on that. That is a good thing. For all the things that we could talk about, we could talk about how sinful and how sad this world is. We could talk about, you know, all the things that are waiting for you every single day in your newsfeed and in your inbox. Uh, or on talk radio, all the things you're going to hear about. You're going to hear about those when you leave here in your car, on the TV, on social media. You're going to hear about that. Probably what you're not going to hear is the perspective that we came here to get today and hopefully we leave by. We come here today, so often we come with hidden pain and maybe some trauma from your past, maybe some hurt and abuse. Maybe, maybe you have felt unutterable despair like I did yesterday, but you haven't talked to anybody about it. You kept it hidden, you kept it suppressed, and maybe you crawled in here today with a smile on your face, very fragile smile, but underneath the surface you feel like you're boiling and about to just erupt, and you're just desperately waiting and hoping and praying for some help, for some new perspective. Maybe you're like the person in Psalm 73 ASAP, and he said, when I sought how to understand this, and it was a a twisted perspective, he was spiritually myopic, he could only see what was right in front of him. He couldn't see the big picture, and he says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary, and then I understood. And to me, I always say this at Grace Life, the true test of whether or not you have really met with God, engaged with God, heard from his word, worshiped him, is not maybe how you feel when you leave, it's if you've gained uh, a, a different perspective, If you leave with understanding, that's what I'm after. That's always what I'm after. I'm praying, Lord, help us to come here today, maybe with confusion, maybe with pain, maybe with questions, and help us to leave with fresh perspective from your word. Help us to leave with understanding. So if you crawled in here with hidden pain today, I pray and I hope that that you came to the right place. My my wife's sister lives in Texas, and she texted last night probably before the news hit. She said, there's another really bad shooting here. 
And you, you probably heard nine people dead, seven people injured. And you'll be hearing about it all weekend. And people will be arguing about, about why it happened, why it should have been prevented, how it can be prevented in the future. But what we'll be missing from that perspective is what we're going to hear today, right? That there is a weightiness and a heaviness to the God who sits enthroned above all of this. If I, if I come today and I bring you news of a God who's just as surprised about this news that you were, that's not going to be helpful at all, is it? It's like the father whose son died tragically and surprisingly and suddenly, and a pastor who thought he was helping said, you know what, this God is just as surprised by this as you were. He had nothing to do with this. And the father said, and I've told you this story before, he said, why, pastor, would you take why would you wrestle away from me the one thing that was bringing me hope and comfort? That there's a purpose in this. I may not know what it is. I may not ever know what it is. But I know that sitting above all of this enthroned is a good God who is wise and who is sovereign and who has a reason for it. Even if I can't see it, even if I'm not even able to comprehend or understand it, I know it's true because the Bible says that. So we need a a deeper, more enduring hope. We need an anchor. We need a foundation. We need to hear about God's supremacy. God, God's right to do as he sees fit without getting our permission. God doesn't need a permission slip, right? Before he does a thing, he doesn't have to consult anybody. We've talked about that before. That's, that's the doctrine of, here's the 50 cent word, sovereignty. Sovereignty. It means God is able and has the power and the authority to do Whatever he sees fit without giving an answer to us. That's what it means for God to be sovereign, for him to be supreme. He does a thing. No one can stop him. It doesn't need to consult us. He is sovereign. He is independent. His rule has no checks. It has no balances. It doesn't need any because God's holy and he's wise and he's just. I've, just, I've been thinking about this a lot. How important is Romans chapter 9? Because it, it seems like the future, just so many things are in jeopardy and we hear about it every day. What if three centuries in our nation, we've existed, I guess, less than that. But what if three centuries of comfort and luxury and security just absolutely crumble and anarchy ensues? And false religion dominates the cultural landscape and all these secular ideologies emerge and start to take shape and take over. Will the God you believe in be big enough then to carry you through that? Or do you have a little bitty, eeny, beeny, teeny, weeny, weak and anemic God? We don't. What if the whole world seems to collapse and then rise up in rebellion against Christ? Real, live, hurting, suffering people in real pain come to churches every single week and they need to hear the message that Paul is telling us here. And I love Romans chapter 9 because if you've paid attention to it, here's an apostle. He's an inspired apostle. He saw and met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He has all the credentials, right? He's performed miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He has written scripture. And yet the mighty apostle Paul in explaining to us God's sovereign plan that's the series we're in in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He relies so heavily. He's so dependent on Scripture, isn't he? Whenever he's talking about God, he goes back. He goes back to the Exodus. He goes back to even the patriarchs. 
In Genesis, he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And then he goes through the Exodus with Moses and Pharaoh. Now he's going to come into the time of the prophets. And he's going to quote Hosea. He's already quoted Micah. He's going to quote from Jeremiah. So there's a pattern here. When we want to know who God is and what he is like and what he is doing, so often our own feelings and our experience are going to betray us, friends. And I have to say that as your pastor. We have to rely on this, this solid, reliable, trustworthy, authoritative word of God, right? We don't sit above it judging it. It sits above us, informing us and helping us. That's what we see in Romans chapter 9. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There's continuity there. So Paul roots and he grounds all of his teaching about the sovereignty of God in the Old Testament at every point. And I know, as Craig said, this is a, a hard chapter for a lot of people. They wrestle with this. They grapple with this. It leaves them feeling unsettled and it leaves them with a lot of questions. And so the temptation is, the temptation is to be dismissive of this. Think, well, this is Romans 9, it's hard, there's other chapters in the Bible, so let's just scoot through this really quickly. I don't really want to think about God's sovereignty, that he's powerful, that he's reigning, that he holds sway over histories and over empires and over dynasties and over individuals. But friends, you can't dismiss, dismiss that without also dismissing that he also holds sway over tragedies and crises and emergencies and death and cancer and rebellion, right? You can't jump from the kettle into the fire. That's what happens when you do that. Suffering will come knocking and we need this God. So what I want to do today, that's a long introduction. What I want to do today is show you why this chapter and really all three, 9, 10, and 11 together is not a threat to you. It's part of the good news that Paul is wanting to introduce to us. So why is this good news and how is this good news? Here we go. Speed up a little bit, okay? Three things we see in this passage. The first is this, that God expects our questions. I almost put there our, our not protest, but uh, objection. God expects our objections, but I think the better word for it is that God anticipates our questions about this. Paul is saying some hard things here. You know, even, did you know even the apostle Peter said that our brother Paul says some things which are hard to understand. Did you know Peter said that? And he said this, and he said, in which unstable men twist as they also do the rest of Scripture. So Peter says, hey, Paul writes some, some things that are, man, they're, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And if you're not careful, people will pervert it and twist it and turn it and make it say something that the Apostle Paul never intended to do. And then Peter says something really helpful to us. He says, yeah, they do that, and they also do that with the rest of Scripture. So what Peter is saying is that Paul is writing Scripture. This is God's word for us. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It holds ultimate authority. Paul, Paul says some hard things. And when he says them, you know what? God understands that we're going to raise our hand. Now, I was a teacher once, and we have a lot of amazing teachers in here. And listen, when a student raises their hand, there's two kinds of students that raise their hand, aren't there? There's the kind with a smirk on their face. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? And we don't, teachers don't like that. We're like, you know what? Don't waste your time, my time, or the class's time. Just, just sit. You're sitting in the seat of a scoffer right now. I'm not interested 
and hearing what you have to say. And there's also the student that's confused, that's, that's eager, who wants to learn, who's humble, who's contrite, who knows his place or her place, and they want the knowledge that you can impart to them. And man, don't we love students like that, and don't we want more? So, and I'm going to elaborate on this. You know, I preach a little in the outline. God expects our questions, and he welcomes them. I would even say God accommodates our questions, so long as you remember your place, which is point two, right? God does put us in our place, and that's not, you know, you can do all caps in Greek, and, and Paul doesn't do this here. When he says, hey, look, you're, remember now, we're talking to and about the potter, and we're the clay. We're, we're, we're clay. We're dirt. He forms us and fashions us into vessels, according to his purpose, according to whatever he thinks is wisest and best. But at the end of the day, we're clay. And so be careful. Remember your place. You can't raise your fist and protest and anger. That would be cosmic treason. You have no right to do that. You need to remember your place. Remember your credentials. So that's the second thing. And that's good news, friends. It's good news to know your place. And then the third thing is God gives us the big picture. And this is a mercy. He doesn't have to. God could have said, you know what? Here's the doctrine Sit down, shut up, be quiet, and believe it. I don't have to give you any more information. And God could have done that. And I'll be honest, some preachers preach this as if that's what he's done. And it's not what he's done. God's given room for us to discuss this with him. To keep us in our right place, to keep us in a posture of humility. And God, listen, for the child... For the childlike faith, for the person who comes with humility and says, please help me understand, understand this. God opens up mysteries to us, doesn't he? I see, that in the, the, I see that in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus came into a town, they said, you're the son of God, prove it. Perform a miracle. What did Jesus do? You know, what they, you know, the, only, you know the only thing they saw? They saw the backside of Jesus walking out of their town. He wasn't interested. But for the people that said, master, teacher, Help us. That's when Jesus says, Father, perform this miracle for their sake. Turn this water into wine. Raise this friend of mine, Lazarus, from the dead. Raise this sick girl back to life. Heal this person. Cast this demon out. Jesus wasn't interested in scoffers and skeptics. But the doubter, like Thomas, he gave them a platform. He gave them an on-ramp. And it's the same thing. So, God expects our questions. God puts us in our place. God gives us the big picture. And we're going to spend most of our time in point two. But here's point one. God expects our questions. Now listen, I have given you, I don't even like to say my interpretation, even though it is. I'm a, I'm a fallible man, and I think a man who can't be questioned is a man who can't be trusted. How's that? How's that for qualifications for an elder? If you have a man leading you in a church and he can't be questioned, don't trust the man. Okay, that's for free. But I'm a man and I'm fallible and I need to be checked out with scripture. And I've given you what I believe is, a, is the right interpretation of Romans chapter 9. God is speaking about Israel's unbelief. He's just ended chapter 8 with nothing can separate us from God's love. He made a covenant, unconditional promise with us, signed it in his son's blood. Nothing can ever wrestle us out of his hand. We are secure forever. And then Paul anticipates a Jew, an Israelite, a Hebrew, raising his hand and saying, um, excuse me, I believe that, that's great, that's wonderful, but didn't God make a covenant with Israel too? And it doesn't seem to be that secure because he sent his Messiah and a lot of Israel have rejected Jesus. They've walked away, they've turned their back, they've apostatized, they've rejected Jesus as the reigning king. And so 
What about your covenant promises then? How can that be? How can you say God's reliable? He's dependable. He always keeps his covenant promises. And yet Israel, half of Israel, more than half of Israel, the majority of Israel didn't believe in Jesus. They crucified him. So what do you say about that, Paul? So Paul has been dealing with that in chapter 9. He's been saying, he's been saying look, God's promises are not to ethnic Israel. God's promises are to spiritual Israel. And then he takes us through this sweeping run of history. And he says, look, there, were, there was Isaac and there was Ishmael. Both of them were sons of Abraham. God chose Isaac and passed over Ishmael. And they say, yeah, but they had a different mom. Same dad, different mom, so that doesn't work. And he says, okay, how about this? Jacob and Esau, same mom, same dad. In fact, twins, same worldview, same upbringing. Both got spankings, right? Both got rewards. But Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's a, that's a hard word. And so what comes after that? In verse 14, God starts, Paul starts talking about unconditional election. God did this. He passes over some. He redeems and shows mercy to others. Why? So that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And then people say, oh, there's that word election. And predestination and sovereignty. And it blows my mind and I don't really understand it. And I don't think I like it. So in comes verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, just for review, because it's been about a month. One of the reasons that I told you that the interpretation I gave you of this passage is God's absolute freedom and sovereignty in the, in the area of salvation is because of the objections that Paul anticipates and answers. Because a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, election, I get it. Here's how it works. God looks through the corridors of time. He sees who will believe in his son Jesus and who will not believe in his son Jesus. And he elects them based on that. There. That's what it is. Jesus knows the future. God knows the future. He said, Tommy Clayton will believe. He's elected. That other guy whose name won't be mentioned, he won't believe, so he's not elected. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. Now, that sounds fair, doesn't it? To a lot of people, that sounds fair. And that's the problem, because we got this objection in verse 14. And he says, listen to it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The very fact that Paul anticipated that reaction tells me that this is not about looking through the corridors of time. Plus, he says the children, before they were born, before they had done anything good, like believing in God, or evil, like rejecting God, one was chosen, one was rejected. So verse 14, that was the first question, if, if you want to say it that way, or objection or protest that Paul anticipated. But there's another one, and it's in verse 19. Check this out. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, let me explain this. He has just said that Moses walked into Egypt and he said, Hey, Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? Sure, no problem. Free pass, guys. I don't need those cities built. I don't need this slave labor. Go ahead. No, that's not what Pharaoh said. It was a contest. It was showdown at the OK Corral. And God knew it. And he's setting the stage for this contest. It's a cosmic contest between like the archetype villain of the Old Testament, Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan, honestly. 
You could say he's a type of antichrist, true. I would think even bigger than that, he's a type of Satan. He's opposing God. He's destroying God's people. Remember, he's throwing babies in the Nile River. I mean, can you get any more oppositional than that? He's the villain of villains. And God says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, no, ain't going to happen, bro. Ain't going to happen. I don't even know you. I don't know Yahweh. I don't care to know him. And I'm certainly not letting his people go. So there's this showdown. And you know what happens is God plagues Pharaoh. You know what the word plague means? It's like an Old Testament Hebrew word for a black eye. That's what it means. It means to knock somebody out. It means to strike. God says, I will strike Egypt and Pharaoh with many blows. He's like, oh, you're not going to let it. You, you, you're going to pretend to be this little mini uh, itty bitty teeny weeny God and have control over me. All right, I'll show you who's in control. I'm in control of the Nile River. He turns it to blood. I'm in, charge, I'm in charge of creation, frogs, lice, gnats. I'm in charge of the, I'm in charge of everything. What else was there? Give me some more. Swarms of locusts, weather, lightning, and then eventually life and death. The firstborn of Israel, darkness came over the land. You remember that? Every single one of those represented a false god or a false goddess of Egypt. A deity, if you will. So what God was doing was going through this Egyptian pantheon of false gods and goddesses and going bloop, bloop, bloop. He was toppling every single one of them. This is an amazing, I don't know why I was never taught this in world religion. That would have been helpful in high school, wouldn't it? Hey, which God is supreme in world religion? Well, let's see. Oh, look, Egypt didn't write this in their history. I wonder why. It's pretty embarrassing. In fact, here's what's the most interesting thing to me. God, through Moses, told Pharaoh, hey, look, I have raised you up for this very purpose. And he's confronting Pharaoh with plague number six or seven. He says, I knew you were going to do this. You have hardened your heart, and I've hardened your heart. I knew you were going to do this, and I have allowed you to exist this long for this purpose, so that I can demonstrate my power over you, and so that my name may be known in all the earth. Now here, let me geek out on you for a minute. This is the most interesting thing to me about this whole 15 chapters, which by the way, the Exodus is 15 chapters. Creation is only two or three, right? So Exodus is a big deal to an Israelite. If you want to know who is God, how majestic, how powerful, how sovereign, 15 chapters that show you who God is and how he's supreme. But here, let me geek out. This is the most interesting thing. Do you know his, the best Egyptian historians cannot even with any degree of certainty tell you which Pharaoh this was? Did you know that? They don't know his name. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> but you want to know something really funny? You know the Hebrew midwives? who refuse to obey Pharaoh's orders to throw all the male Hebrew children into the Nile River, they wouldn't do it. We know their names. Their names are given in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. That's just interesting, isn't it? God like completely, completely turns on its head uh, world values and political values. Who was Pharaoh? Don't know. Know the midwives who obeyed God though, and we also know who God is because he definitely showed us, right? So, where was I? Point one, right? God understands our objective. So, so here, here's the thing. Verse 19. Verse 19 is playing off of that history where, where Paul tells us, looking at, looking at the Exodus, God, God hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills. So God is exercising his freedom, his power, his sovereignty. He can harden a Pharaoh if he wants to. He can do that. I told you last time, Pharaoh's responsible. He hardened his heart through five or six plagues, and then God hardened his heart. That's why you got to be careful when you reject and you become obstinate 
and rebellious and cantankerous because that can take you into a deep, dark place from which you never emerge. Just like Romans chapter 1, it says three times, God gave them over, God gave them up, God gave them over. He gave them what they wanted. Pharaoh wanted to sin and he wanted to rebel and God said, go right ahead. And sinners who resist the gospel, oppose the gospel, mock the gospel, reject the gospel, they want God to leave them alone, they want him to go away. And sometimes God says, your will be done, I will. I'm going to lead the lights out and I'm going to harden your heart and you're done. That's it. That's why the Bible gives warnings and pleads with us. Today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart, friends, because it may be a place from which you never emerge. But going back to that first point, God hardens whom he wills and he shows mercy on whom he wills. Now, that makes that, let's be honest, we bristle at that. We don't like that. I don't like that. Sounds like God's meddling. It sounds like God's tampering with my free will. I don't like it. Not cool. Did you know that Paul anticipates that very rejection, that very question that we have? Because check it out. Verse 19 is what he says. You will say to me then, did you know that Paul could read your mind? You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? He's saying, let me get this straight. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Right. Pharaoh is doing what God wanted Pharaoh to do, right? Right. Then why does he hold Pharaoh responsible for that? Why is it Pharaoh's fault? It should be God's fault. Have you ever thought that? The very fact that this question is in Romans 9 tells me that we're on the right trail when we're interpreting it that way. God has the right and the authority to do as he sees fit. Right? If he just looked through the corridors of time, nobody's going to raise those objections. Nobody is going to say, yep, sounds fair to me. God, God let me determine everything. That sounds fair to me. But that's not what this is saying at all. I don't want to spend any more time on that. We already have. Be happy to talk with you about it later. But listen, God not only uh, predicted your reaction and my reaction to that. He welcomes it. He wants you to ask those questions. God wants to help us. So God expects our objections. He understands them. He accommodates them. Now listen, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that God is always going to give you the answer that satisfies you. Right? In fact, I would say this rarely does he. You look throughout scripture, lots of people have asked God why. When, you, when it comes to the question why with God, you have to be very careful. God doesn't always answer that. Sometimes he gives you a more generic answer that we don't always welcome, like for my glory, right? Remember when the man was born blind in John 9? And the disciples asked Jesus, why did this happen? Who sinned? I mean, back then they thought if you suffer, it was your fault, you sinned. They said, who sinned, him or his parents? And remember what Jesus said? Neither. I did that. That's what he says. And he says, I did it so that my glory may be revealed. That's probably not an answer anybody who's blind wants to hear, right? But that was the answer for that man. And then God healed him. And really, that was a parable. You read 9, 10, and 11, everybody's blind to who Jesus is. And he, he did a miracle for a parable of, yeah, we're all spiritually blind. And unless I miraculously turn the lights on you'll stay blind right so God understands our questions and he gives us help he doesn't always do it to our satisfaction so that's point one point number two God puts us in our place and we're going to camp out here for a while okay God puts us in our place after verse 19 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. I think I actually have this. See. Here we go. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Full stop right there. Now again, I could say, and listen, I'm not just trying to defend my interpretation But if we're understanding this to mean what I've taught that it means, God unconditionally elects, God predestines people from the foundation of the world. He elects some into everlasting life and others he leaves in their sin. If that's what this means, then this makes total sense. Because God is comparing his activity in the world to a potter who has authority. This is really about credentials. God is saying, look, I welcome the question I'm going to answer it for you, but before I do, we have to talk about something. We have, to, we have to talk about who you are and who I am. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus wrote it, Solomon. And he said something, chapter 5. He said, when you come to the house of worship, don't make any rash vow. Don't say anything hasty with your mouth. Remember, you are on earth and God is in heaven, right? It's good to remember that. It's good to remember your place. It's good to remember your place in the world. I have six kids, two of whom are toddlers, and I am constantly having to remind them their place in the world. They're not determining what we're going to do today, where we're going to go, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, when we're going to get up, and when we're going to go to bed. That's not their place. They don't have that authority. In fact, I got a funny quote for you here. Jordan Peterson, anybody know who that is? Yeah, he wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. This came out of chapter 4. I read this with my wife the other day. Chapter 4, and it's titled, Do Not Let Your Children Do Anything That Makes You Dislike Them. And listen, it's a cool chat. You should check it out sometime. He's not, I don't think Jordan Peterson's a Christian. He flirts with the idea. But the premise in that chapter is, if you love your children and you tolerate them doing things that make you despise them, how do you think they're going to function in the world where people don't love them the way you do? It's pretty cool to think about. Anyway, he says this. Two-year-olds, statistically speaking, are the most violent of people. Now, don't be offended by this. Just you can make you smile, especially if you're a mom or dad, okay? They kick, hit, and bite. And they steal the property of others. <laughs> True. Especially candy, man. Whew. They do so to explore, to express outrage and frustration, and to gratify their impulsive desires. More importantly, for our purposes, they do so to discover the true limits of permissible behavior. You know what he's saying? They're trying to figure out what their place is in this world. And you, parent, are the primary means of them discovering that. (laughs) And we don't often do a good job of that, do we? We like move the boundaries. One day it's different than the next. Ah, that's a parenting class. We'll do that another time. How else are they ever going to puzzle out what is acceptable? Infants are like blind people searching for a wall. They have to push forward and test to see where the actual boundaries lie. Consistent correction of such action indicates the limits of acceptable aggression to the child. Its absence merely heightens curiosity. So the child will hit and bite and kick if he is aggressive and dominant until something indicates a limit. 
And that something is supposed to be apparent, right? Saying, look, look here, buddy. Let me remind you of something. You're a two-year-old. We're not going to negotiate. I'm in control here. I'm in power. I'm seated in authority here, and you're not. You're the two-year-old. I'm the adult. You have to be put in your place. Hey, have you ever been put in your place even beyond being a toddler? You don't, probably don't even remember that. Anybody ever been put in your place? I have. It's not always a pleasant experience, but it doesn't have to be unpleasant. Sometimes it's a good thing. It's a reminder like, hey, you're taking way too much on here. You're taking way. You don't need to do this. This is not good for you. And that's why this is good news. I have heard people taught this as if this is the most scathing rebuke you could ever hear. And it can be taken that way if you're a scoffer and a skeptic and you're shaking your fist at a sovereign God. But it's not always, I don't think it's always intended. In fact, I think there's room in this passage to wherever you're at. If you want to flourish, we talked about that at our men's thing. Matt did a great job bringing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, to bear on the life of men. If you want to be a successful man, you even want to know what it means to be a man, right? And we need that in today's culture, right? You want to know, hey, what's the end goal? How do I know if I'm crushing it as a man or not? How do I know if I, how do I thrive and be successful and be blessed and be happy? Well, Sermon on the Mount, that's how. And you know what else I could say? I could add to it, know your place. Know your place. When you're trying to grapple and, and grasp at things that don't belong to you, like uh, Adam and Eve did, <laughs> they were tempted. Hey, taste this fruit. God knows the second you do, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. God doesn't want you to be like him. God feels threatened by you, right? Not at all. God had given them everything they need, but they were tempted. Step, step over that boundary, Take upon yourself authority that's not yours. You choose good and evil on your turn. Guys, we live, in a, we live in a society like that. Right now, we do, really. And it's easy to get swept up into it. You got people saying, hey, look, my body, my decision, right? And that even changes depending on what it is. If it's a baby or a vaccine, it could be different, totally different. You know, when it's convenient for us, we adopt that, that, that mantra. Or uh, I feel this way about my sexuality, and you know what? God says, you have to be careful because you need to, be, you need to remember, I'm the creator. I already determined all of that. Right? You don't, you don't get a say-so in that. I've already determined that. I'm not being mean to you. Man, that's, what, that's the message we really need. This is not being cruel and vindictive. Oh, gosh, you're crushing their dreams. No, I'm protecting them. It's not good. The road, the path they're going down, it's not good for them. It's not safe. It's not wise. It's not good for the future generations. They need to remember they're clay. I'm the potter and I made them this way and I knew exactly what I was doing and I didn't leave it open for any other options. We live in a day and age. We need that. We need it theologically. We need it physically. We need it ideologically and every other way we possibly could. Socially, fill in the blank. We have to be put in our place. He puts us in our place. Sometimes we cross the line. And listen, there's a qualitative difference between a potter and, and clay. <laughs> He's not insult. This is not an insult. It doesn't have to be an insult. Just the fact that there is a loving potter who wants to use us. I was thinking about that this morning, man. God took me, dirt, clay of the ground, and he fashioned me intricately. Well, you ever read Psalm 139? Man, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made us and, and fashioned us into a vessel that has the potential to be of noble use, right? It's his prerogative. He's the potter. We surrender to him. He has that right. He and he alone 
carries that right. And, we, and if we're thinking clearly and sanely, we wouldn't want to take that from him. We want to entrust that to him. Jeremiah 18, God gives a parable to, to Jeremiah. He says, hey, go down to the potter's house and watch him. And the, and the, the potter's making a, a vessel out of clay and he breaks it and he has to refashion it. And God is saying, Israel is like the clay and I'm doing with them what I see fit. You know, there's another, another place he quotes from, Isaiah 45. And I think this can get into the area where we get angry and we say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's unjust. God can't do that. Then we're getting into trouble and then we really need to physically, theologically be put in our place. Like, hey, careful. Here's what he says, Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. In other words, you're criticizing. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? So there's like a gracious and a loving warning here. Be careful striving against your maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds. Stay on your level, man. Stay in the ring. Stay in your lane. Don't get out of your lane. Don't start shaking your fist at God. We have to be put in our place. And I love the way you see this historically in the Bible. Remember Moses, he fled Egypt, he was a fugitive, he was working for his father-in-law on the backside of the wilderness, and he saw something that startled him and that aroused his curiosity. He saw a bush that was on fire, that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. You remember what Moses said? He said, man, check this out. This is a wonder. This is a phenomenon. I've never seen anything like this. I'm going to go check it out. And he takes off and he goes over there. He says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. So there's a why here. Moses is going to this bush with his knowledge, his wisdom, his experience, his science, whatever, whatever you want, his learning, to figure out, like there's a perfectly good explanation for why this bush is burning but not consumed. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Stop. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's the right posture. Now, it wasn't that Moses was sinning and he was getting rebuked. Moses was getting very hasty. He was getting very near to God. He was going to investigate and figure this out. And God says, slow down, stop. Take your sandals off your feet, which is a symbol of, hey, remember, you're a creature of the ground. You're clay, and you're about to approach a holy God. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you need to approach me with reverence and with humility and with childlike dependency. And then Moses grew fearful in the right kind of way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? You know the same thing happened to Joshua in chapter 5? God told them, go into the land of Canaan and conquer everything in my name. And so the, the first big obstacle is Jericho with these walled, insurmountable, uh, insurmountable city walls. And I know Joshua is a commander. He's a soldier. It's probably the night before the battle and he's walking maybe near the edge of a cliff and he's looking at Jericho and he's thinking, how are we ever, ever going to accomplish this? And check this out. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So what do you think Joshua was thinking? 
Here's somebody from Jericho, man. They're wanting to get it on early. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He's saying friend or foe. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I get chill bumps reading this, man. Here is a pre-incarnate image of Jesus Christ, I believe, holding a sword. Joshua had no idea who this was. But he's not doing anything wrong or sinful or out of bounds. He walks up and he says, hey, are you for us or are you for them? And here's God, pretty much. And God says, no, I'm for neither. I'm for me. <laughs> right? Now, we know that God is going to protect Israel and give them victory. But he has, he has to, to, to set the conditions, right? He's saying, Joshua, be careful. And then check this out. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Good response, Joshua. Good response. Are you for us or for them? I'm for me. What do you say to me? Have you ever read this in Joshua chapter 5? Check this out. What does my Lord say to his servant? See, he's put in his place. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And it went well with him. Do you hear a theme there? Take your shoes off. Take your sandals off. Remember your place. Remember who you are. Now I got one more, one more illustration here from the Old Testament. And I'm just trying to do what Paul did, man. <laughs> what does this mean? There's plenty of places we can go. And I can show you what it means in the Bible, right? You remember poor Job. What a man. What suffering he went through. What travail and anguish. Lost everything dear to him. His flocks, his material, his, his livelihood, his children, his health, everything is just, he's, he's languishing. And you know, in the beginning, Job had the right response. He fell to the ground, he put ash, he ripped his clothes, a sign of mourning and grieving, cut his hair, and he said, naked I came from the womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Great response, right? But as humans are prone to do, his friends came. Terrible friends, terrible counselors. And they started contesting him saying, Surely you've done something evil, Job. You've done something wrong. You've got hidden sin. You need to confess it. And then Job starts questioning himself. And then he gets angry. And then he starts saying, Oh, that I could contend with God, man. If I could just get an audience with God face to face, man, I'd, I'd ask him some questions. I have some questions for God. I wish he would come and show himself. And I think Job starts to cross the line. And do you remember how the end of Job closes out? God eventually said, you want an audience with me? You got it, buddy. And you remember what God does? He shows up in an F5 tornado <laughs> in the Middle East. This is what he does. God shows up in a storm. God shows up in a storm. And he asked Job 84 questions. And you remember this. It's beautiful. Chapters 38 through 41. God takes Job on this whirlwind, literally, using that word right for once. Young people pay attention, right? Literally. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a terrible joke. He literally takes him on a whirlwind tour across all creation. He takes him into the secret places of the mountain. He shows him uh, the storehouses of hail and snow and rain. He shows him where the mountain goats give birth. He takes them to the depths of the sea and shows him these two amazing creatures, Leviathan and Behemoth. And what he's doing is he's showing Job things that he can see 
but doesn't have the wisdom to understand. He's saying, Job, let me show you something, buddy. All these things that you see, like it snows, doesn't it? It hails, it rains, mountain goats give birth, ostriches bury their eggs, the stars and constellations come out. Do you see all that? Do you know how it works? You can't even understand the things you see, Job. How in the world can you understand things you don't see? Because he never did tell Job what went on in the courtroom. This contest between Satan and God. He never told him about it. But do you remember how Job ends that section? Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, and here it is. Here's Job putting himself in his place. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So what God is doing here is he's putting us in our place and re- reminding us, I'm, on, I'm in heaven, you're on earth. You have a very limited capacity to understand eternal truths. I mean, God, it's mind-blowing, guys. If you think about this, if this unsettles you and you're like, God can't do this, it's not right, it doesn't make sense, uh, just think about that, man. An eternal being with perfect wisdom. I mean, that would make the Library of Congress look like a frog and toad book, Right? <laughs> I mean, I can't even find my twin sock in the dryer. Seriously, I still can't find. I don't know where it is. (laughs) And we're like shaking our fist at God sometimes and thinking, this can't be right. You can't do this. This doesn't seem fair to me. It's not right. It's not just. Why can you still find fault? How are we culpable and responsible and accountable? If you're hardening whom you will and showing mercy to whom you will, I don't get it. And God says, it's okay. You don't don't always have to get it, but you have to trust me because I've, I've proven myself trustworthy. See, we get suspicious, guys. We do. We are living in a suspicious age. Anybody who has power and authority, we don't like it. Especially if it's an institution, we get suspect. We get sus, right? Big tech, big pharma, big government. I don't like it. When, when human beings get power and authority and control, they hurt people. They grow corrupt. They abuse people. They do things in secret that are unethical. And then they get busted. And so when God comes along... And says, I have ultimate control, I have ultimate authority, I have ultimate power, and you don't. You're, you're the clay, I'm the potter. We don't like that. But friends, there's also the difference between God is not sinful, right? I've given you that Jackie Hill Perry quote, and man, it's a good quote. Check this out. I want to read it one more time. If God is holy, then he can't sin. Everybody agree with that premise? Okay, good. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. Everybody agree with that? Okay. Shouldn't that make God the most trustworthy being there is? (laughs) If God is holy, he can't sin. If he can't sin, he can't sin against you. If he can't sin against you, you can trust him. He's never going to wrong you or do anything unethical, unholy, unrighteous, or unjust. Ever. Jesus proved that to us. Jesus came down to show us. He says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what God is like. He can be trusted. He puts us in his place. You know what happened yesterday in London? Anybody know? Anybody know what's going on in the world? Coronation, man. They swore in the king of England. They swore in the king of England. First time in, well, not first time. 
70-something years, man. It was a big deal. But not everybody was excited about it. Did you know that? In 70 years, a lot has happened. Some people have grown restless and tired of the monarchy. They don't want a king. They didn't, they didn't want a queen. They certainly don't want a king. I thought it was really sweet, man. Uh, so he's, here he is. He's, <laughs> he's sitting on this wooden throne that's like, I, I read like hundreds of years. This thing's like 700 years old. And he's sitting on it, and he's got a scepter. Everything about the, the British monarchy, depending on how curious you are, everything has a, you know, uh, Cliff, I was reading, they went to Jerusalem. They got some olives and pressed them and made olive oil. They anointed him with holy olive oil, blessed from Jerusalem. Everything has like a tradition and a meaning and a purpose. Here's something that was really cool. Prince William, you know, he's been in the news. He's got all this clout, man, and authority and power and he had to walk up to his father who was just crowned king. He's been functioning as king, but this was the official coronation, right? The formality where it makes it official. And he had to, to kneel down. He had to kneel before his father. He had to reach out, clasp his hands in between his fathers and pledge that he was liege. Is that the right? Swear felty, swear loyal. All these British words uh, don't really make sense to, to Americans in the West. But he had to, he had to basically say, I pledge my life for your life, and I trust you, and I love you, and I'll protect you, life and limb, something like that. And then he had to kiss his father on the cheek. And it reminded me of Psalm 2, kiss the son, except here it's kiss the father, right? Kiss the son, lest he be angry. He is swearing loyalty to his father. You know what he's doing? Prince William is putting himself in his place, in front of the whole nation. That was good. That was a visible reminder for everybody to know. One day, I think, isn't it William? He's next in line, right? Or is it Kate? I, who knows, man? Who can keep up with all this stuff? But he's saying, hey, I'm a prince right now. You're the king. I'm the prince. And it's the same for us to say, hey, look, you're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I ain't got no agenda. I don't want to be the potter. Can't imagine the pressures, right? The sword of Damocles hanging over by a horsehair <laughs> over your head if you want to have all that authority and power and control. No, you're the potter, I'm the clay, this is where I belong. I'm good with that. I thank you for that. It's just a joy and a privilege to be in the potter's shop and to be something useful to him. I want to be useful. I want to be a vessel of honor, right? But you know there were also people there. Oh, and there he is kissing him. How sweet. Oh, okay. And then look, other people weren't happy. These were the scoffers, the protesters. They don't want a monarchy, they're not happy about it. They want people to know, not my king, abolish the monarchy and all kinds of other stuff. Some of it obscene, but it didn't end well for them. For that guy especially. And I'm not doing that to be funny, but I just can't help but think, it's just interesting, man. Yesterday, 70 years, they, the coronation of the king, and today we're talking about the potter and the clay. And man, just, to, and I think, I think uh, King Charles III, he should remember his place as a king too, Right? He is a king, but he's not the king of kings. He's just a puny little piece of clay with this little, not plastic. I guess it actually has gold and stuff in it, right? It's pretty valuable, apparently. Five pounds worth. Anyway, he needs to remember there's this man-made crown on his head. But he is subject to another king. Remember that. Because with great responsibility comes great... Con wait. With gr Thank you. I got that backwards. He is accountable to the king of kings and lord of lords. This is uh, Psalm 131. It says this. Here's the right posture, okay? Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. 
But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. See, God welcomes our doubts. He welcomes our questions. But he has to put us in our place and keep us in our place because that's good for us. We don't need to be in the center of the universe, right? We got enough narcissistic DNA in us. It's easy for us to drip there. God has to put us back. Say, I'm at the center. I'm at the top. I'm the potter. You're the clay. You need to accept this. You need to, re- you need to submit to this and surrender to this. The potter has freedom, he has sovereignty, he has power, and he has control. And we are not in a good place when we contest that and protest against that. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? And then listen, guys, I'm going to stop here. The next thing he does in verse 22, we'll pick it up next time we're in Romans, okay? Probably not going to be on Mother's Day. But verse 22 says, what if God... Wanting, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory, there's that word, for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea. Uh, And then he quotes Isaiah. You know what God is doing here? He's saying, for those of you who are humble, you're in your place. You've asked a genuine question. I'm going to pull back the curtain of my eternal decree, and I'm going to show you what's going on here. And God is saying, there's something bigger going on here than what you realize and what you understand. I remember there's a a movie. Okay, last illustration, then we'll close, okay? There's a movie from 2007. And I love it. I don't know. If there's anything weird in that movie, I I shouldn't love it. I'm sorry. But I I always thought it was a funny movie. And uh, it's about a a bee. And Jerry Seinfeld does the voice of this bee. And, you know, bees have a life expectancy of, somebody help me here, 50 days, 45 days. They don't live very long. And so the movie plays off of that short life of a bee. And all they do is work, 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 and then they die. And so this bee, he graduates on the third day of his life, high school, and he, along with his good friend, uh, they go to the, the honey factory to, to choose their job. And they say, hey, you're going to choose your job, and then we're going to work you to death until you die. And that's it. And he has a problem with that. He doesn't want to work till he dies. So he goes out, and he has, uh, you know, he, he doesn't sow his wild oats. He just has a day to think. And while he's out, he discovers something. Human beings like honey. And they actually steal honey from bees. So his, the wheels in his little bee brain start spinning, and he says, wait, wait a minute. I go, and I work until I die, and I work to produce this honey, and I don't even get to enjoy it. Humans steal it, and they use it, and then I die, and that's it? No, thank you. I don't like that. And so he takes humanity to court. Do you remember this? There's actually a courtroom trial, and he sues humanity for exploiting bees, and he wins. He wins. So human beings are no longer allowed to use honey. And then the world starts falling apart. Do you remember? Because honey enriches the, the, whole, the whole globe. People are enriched by it. And if bees don't go out and do their pollination, plants die. Flowers don't bloom. The world is a bleak, dismal, dark, ugly place. And at the very end of the movie, this bee gets enlightened. He flies out and he sees all the death that has happened. And he, God, God opens up. <laughs> he has his mind enlarged a little bit. And he sees the bigger plan. And then he... he he realizes, you know what? What I do is important. What I do is valuable. 
what I do is necessary. I need to go and I need to uh, be in my proper place because there's a bigger plan here at work and I'm just a cog in a wheel. But it's a beautiful wheel. It's an important wheel. It's a necessary wheel. And that's what God is going to do. We're going to get into that the next time we look at this. But, but let me close with a question for you. The reason we are suspicious of people with power is because we've been hurt and we've been abused and we've seen corruption. And so our trust level is off, right? That's why we have a hard time with this. Because it, take th- it takes things out of our control, like salvation, right? And puts it in God's control. And we have this question, how do we know that I can trust God? So here's my question for you. Here's the way you know that you can trust God with power. What did he do with it? Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus Christ, and he comes. And, you know, we went through Mark's gospel here. It took us a couple of years. Years ago, we went through it. And the key verse is in the very middle of the gospel of Mark. It's chapter 10, verse 45, and Jesus says this. And it is one of the most stunning things that he ever said. He said, the Son of Man has come not to be served. Full stop, pause. Stop right there. Is that weird for a king to say that? Is that weird for the human being who has ultimate authority and control and power and could squash all of us like a bug and we deserve to be squashed like a bug because of our sin and rebellion? For him to say that. I have come, I have... I have left aside my lofty throne in heaven and I've come down here and crawled inside a human body, subjected myself to human suffering and accusations and pain and agony and even death and treason and murder and suffering. I've done all that not so that I can be served, so that I can serve. And then he says this, and what? Give my life a ransom for many. How did God use his power in Jesus? He laid it aside and he used it so that we could be rescued. So don't you know you can trust him? The one who is calling you to trust him is doing so with outstretched arms that have nail holes in them and has a crown of thorns on his head, and he did that for you. Will you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you actually want to take sovereignty and control out of the hands of that one? You do not. You want to surrender, and you want to bow the knee, and you want to do what Prince William said. Into your hands I commit my body and my spirit and I, and I kiss you and I love you and I thank you for being the God who gave his life for mine. I don't deserve that. Do we, do, do we deserve such love? No, we don't. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these truths. They are powerful. They're wonderful. They're mysterious. They're deep. And Lord, we, we also have a, a reminder today. We have communion where we're going to come and be reminded of, of what it cost you to lay that power aside, Lord, and rescue us in humility, and in brokenness, and through suffering. So I pray as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, that we would be humble, Lord, and we would know that we can trust you. You are utterly trustworthy. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name.